It's McClure, deep right corner. Yeah, he's hit another one. Same spot. King McClure has hit two threes from deep in the right-hand corner. Get off on the baseline. Gives it away to Butler. Butler back outside. Here's a three. Right side by McClure. It's another three. Mason up the left side of the floor. McClure, a three. Yes! King McClure nails another three. And now it's time for a King's Court Podcast. And here's your host, King McClure. Welcome back to episode seven of King's Court Podcast. Today we're talking about coaching. And I think whether you play sports or not, coaching is something that we can all, you know, adhere to because, you know, your coach, you can refer to your coach as your boss or, you know, your parents or, you know, some somebody that is a superior to you, you know, somebody who you have to listen to somebody who you got to take orders from. We all do it. I mean, we can even look at God as our coach. So I feel like coaching is something that we all can relate to. And when I was thinking about coaching, you know, who else better than somebody who's done it and somebody who's seen it done a million and five times, probably literally, other than the Fran Fischilla. And I'm excited to have him on the show because, he brings a lot of wisdom every time I talk to him. There's never been a conversation I've had with him that I didn't learn something from. So I'm hoping that you can learn something from him and, you know, basically learn something that you can relate to and deals and that deals with coaching. So without further ado, here is Fran Fischilla. One, here with Fran Fischilla. How are you doing, Miss Fischilla? Well, King McClure, I'm doing outstanding. I just got back from the NBA Summer League, watched a lot of good hoop, and uh, so all is well. Everything is good. Yes, sir. Anybody stand out to you in the, in the Summer League? Yeah, a lot of guys. You know, it wasn't just uh, you know the high-profile the high guys because, as you know, a lot of the number one picks did not play, mm-hmm. including a guy you guarded uh, quite a bit, Jared Culver. Yeah, yeah. He sat out, but... Uh, what I like about Summer League is just all these guys who play college basketball, um, most of them haven't made the league yet, but they're just all grinding. Yeah. And they come they come from all different schools, big schools, small schools, and everybody's out there competing. So I really enjoy it. I got to broadcast the games and did the finals and mm-hmm. uh and uh Memphis beat Minnesota and it was a it was a lot of fun. You know, I saw a tweet that was kinda of interesting, Lonzo Trier tweeted it out and Basically talked about how a lot of guys that were drafted did not play. Basically, what you just said, you know. Yeah. So, what what what's your view on that? Because he Alonzo thought it was, in a sense, kind of weak. You know, kind of just yeah. said said a lot about that. So, what what's your what's your take on that? Well, I think a lot of guys uh, probably a lot of those guys wanted to play, uh-huh. but uh, there were some cases where some of them were banged up a little bit. I mean, I think if it was the regular season, Zion Williamson could have played more than nine minutes, but. Pelicans have so much invested in him. I guess they didn't want him getting hurt in the summertime, and yeah, yeah. that was true of, of another n- a number of other picks. But on the other hand, it was impressive. You know, Jared Allen, guy you played against from mm-hmm. Texas, and he's going into his third year in the NBA. He played almost the entire summer league. Yeah, uh, got, he did get hurt in the final game he played in the semifinals. I don't think it was serious, but uh, you know, a lot of guys want to play and ball out, and other guys, you know, are told not to play. 
and uh, nurse some you know minor injuries. But you know, what it does is op- offers the opportunity for guys who are looking to uh, make their mark. Uh, have they have more time to do that? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So the topic today is coaching, and you know you were a coach, and you started yep. off as an assistant coach at Providence with Rick Barnes, which I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, but you started off with Rick Barnes, and then you served as a head coach at Manhattan College, uh, St. John's, and the University of New Mexico. Yeah. So you know, I just want to talk to you about coaching because you're it's an area where you're really familiar with. So yes. You know, first the first question that I want to ask is, what was your coaching style? You know, were you like a more of a Bob Huggins or a Scott Drew or a Bill Self? Like, what was your coaching oh, style? Oh, I was intense. I was intense. <laughs> well, first of all, let me take you back because I was I was an assistant coach for about fourteen seasons. Um, as even even though I started young, you know, I was before Providence. I was at Ohio State, Ohio University, mm-hmm. University of Rhode Island. And so, what happens is when you're a young coach as an assistant, you're kind of searching for your own style and you're it's got to be within your personality and so even though i work for some great head coaches like rick barnes and gary williams at ohio state who ultimately you know took maryland to the national championship and is in the hall of fame you kind of as a young coach you can't be like if i was working for scott drew you can't be exactly like scott drew you know no one is you know you can't be like bill self uh you got to be yourself but you have to develop a style within your personality. So that's a long way of saying that my style was one of uh, of, of being very demanding, uh-huh. uh, sometimes intense, but always trying to get the most out of players on the court while keeping a great relationship with them off the court. And um, not easy sometimes because, uh-huh. as you see, like in the, you, you may remember in the NCAA tournament this year when Tom Izzo yelled at his uh, young freshman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hill, I think Harris or Hill, I think, yeah. and uh, you know he he jumped on him hard, but you know that young man knew that if he went to Michigan State, he was going to get all the Tom Izzo, you know, not just the nice Tom Izzo, but the intense Tom Izzo. So I was pretty intense, but I also tried to make, maintain a good relationship with the players off the court, so they knew I cared about them and just wasn't mm-hmm. yelling at them for no reason. Yeah, that that brings them up another point that I wanted to talk about. You know, sure. you mentioned um, you you wanted to show your players that you cared about them. Like you wanted them to know that you cared about them, yeah. even though you know you'd be hard on them. So how how right. does a coach do that? What does that look like? Because a lot of players think that oh, coach is yelling at me. He doesn't like me. He's yeah. always riding me. He doesn't like me. So what? How how do you establish that relationship to where your players trust you enough to know that yeah. you care about them, as opposed to you just yelling at them just to yell at them? Well, it's a great question. I have to tell you, times have changed. You know, like <laughs> yeah. players, I hate, to, I hate to say it this way, but players are a little different than they used to be maybe 15 or 20 years ago where you could get on them. You could still have the relationship off the mm-hmm. court, but you have to be really delicate now. You still have to be intense and get the most out of them. And I think like Coach Drew, for example, a guy you played with, mm-hmm. I, I've seen Coach intense, but it's never personal. Yeah. And, you know, I know that – uh Sometimes he might be disappointed in like you when you were playing for him, your team's play. But I've always admired the way he handles himself, you know, within the, mm-hmm. you know, within the team. Because I don't think there's any question. Everybody knows that he cares about you know his players. Well, when you're an intense coach, you have to spend more time with the guys off the court. They have to absolutely know you're looking out for their best interest. And a lot of times, King, it was about getting the most out of a player who I thought actually had NBA potential. 
Hmm. And I, I wanted to tell them, I coached 18 NBA players, and um, some as an assistant, some as a head coach. And so when I was intense, what I was trying to do is get the most out of them and get them to understand that, like, when you go to training camp and it's between you and another player for the last spot on the roster, that I wanted to give you an advantage because you've been coached hard and coached well and that, you know, you wanted the uh, NBA coaches to say, hey, this guy knows what work ethic is about. You know, he knows what toughness is about. And so you try to explain to them that you're preparing them in the event they get a chance to be an NBA player. But also, you know, holding them accountable to saying, look, you're going to be running a business someday or you're going to be a parent someday and you're going to want to hold your employees or your children accountable. So there's definitely an art form to do it. And I think yelling for the sake of yelling is not the the best way to go. Mm-hmm. But I think demanding that they do their best, you know, you can get a lot out of a guy if he knows you care about him. Yeah, most definitely. I, I've seen that in my years of playing. If I knew the coach cared about me, like I knew Coach Drew cared about me. So every game I go yeah. out there and I play hard for him because the, the exactly. things that he did for me with my heart condition, my heart disease, um, I was right. able to go out there and, you know, play, you know, as hard as I possibly could just because I knew that he cared about me. So... But yeah. another, another aspect to that is, you know, your starters are always going to be happy with you because they're playing 30-plus minutes a game. But, yeah. you know, maybe guys, maybe number six, maybe the sixth man is happy too. So guys seven through ten, how do you keep yeah. those guys happy in a locker room and not create a chaos between, you know, sure. make a unhappy how – how do you keep them from making, an unhappy, making it an unhappy um, locker yeah. room? It's a really good question, and one of the things I used to do in practice was we did a lot of we had, we did a lot of peer pressure drills. We mm. did a lot of drills where we kept score, and we uh, you know we evaluated performance, and and actually had the team evaluate. And you know now players who do not play as much as the starters by nature are going to always be unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes you have to be blunt with them and be honest with them. Um, and, and say, these are the things you have to do in order to play more. But you also like to show them, look, we chart your shooting percentages. You're making 31% of your threes in practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need you to, if we, if we need you, if we put you out there with the idea that you're making shots, we need you to shoot better. You know, the other guy that's playing in front of you is shooting better. Or the other guy, you know, I, I used to chart, uh, you know, uh, things like deflections. Uh-huh. and offensive rebounds attempted, and extra passes. Um, so, like, like, I had a drill. I had a, I, had a, I had a stat where if you threw a pass to a teammate like Makai Mason, mm-hmm. and it led to him getting an open shot or a two-shot foul, even if he didn't make the shot, I gave you a what we call a bear assist, okay? Mm. When we watched the film, you'd have a bear assist for that play. So I was constantly keeping... T- charts and stats to show the players, hey, look, we don't keep these for our health. These are what we call effort stats, and your effort stats aren't as high as some of the other guys. Mm-hmm. So we need you to play with more effort. And you try to be as honest as you possibly can, And um, but they're always going to be unhappy. And I think what you try to do nowadays, I notice this, coaches are less likely to have 13 scholarship players eligible because that's hard to keep everybody happy. Yeah. So, for example, this year with your team, you had 
you know, Maceo and, uh, and uh, Davion sitting out, mm-hmm. even though they were on scholarship. And I think right now in college basketball, you don't need 13 eligible players. That's too many to keep happy. Mm-hmm. But you also have to be concerned about injuries. So there's a fine line there. But you've got to be honest with players and explain to them, do these things and we'll play you. Mm-hmm. So when you were coaching, yep. you know, a lot of people, you know, we talked about players being unhappy. But to yep. another take on that is also not just the players being unhappy, but the parents being unhappy. So yes. were, were you the type of coach that just, you know, I've heard some, I've heard some coaches just, you know, they, they don't talk to parents. They don't want to deal with parents. Right. They only want to deal with players because in a sense, we're grown men. We're over eighteen. We can handle yeah. our own, our own right. problems and our own controversies. So, are you the type? Were you that type of coach? Were you the type of coach who welcomed the parents to be a little involved? Well, I got to know the parents really well during the recruiting period, uh-huh. you know, and um, so it was hard to disengage them once they sent their son to play for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but normally, what I would try to do as much as possible is, you know, the assistant coaches who recruited each player. Uh, I wanted them to be responsible for the same communication they had when they were recruiting them. Now, if I had to get involved, I would, but I think it's healthy sometimes that I kept my distance from parents because um, it's the parents aren't at practice every day, yeah, and they don't see everything that goes on. And I know being a parent now and having coached two or watched two sons play in high school and then in college that um, I wasn't always happy with the coaches and how they handled my sons, but I tried to maintain some distance, maybe because I was a coach. So I, I think, I think a, depending on every situation, I think a head coach needs to keep a little bit of distance, and the communication probably is best between the assistant coaches and the parents, uh, unless it's something serious. And um, the other thing that happens is, if a player is being honest with you about his playing time, and he knows he has to get better, and you, you, you're honest with him. A lot of times they'll go to their parents and say, I got this handled. I'm going to, I'm going to work hard. Coach is fair with me. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what he tells me and see if it works out. And so, you know, I think that's healthy too. But when we're dealing with, when we're dealing with parents and their children, um, I used to tell my guys, look, I, you know, your mom and dad, for example, they love King. They mm-hmm. might like Makai. They might like Tristan, but they love King. Um, and I gotta love all thirteen of you. Yeah, I can't just like you guys. I gotta love all you guys. So you try to explain it that way, but it's very dicey, and it's you know all part of the tug and pull between a coach and his players and their parents. And you try to do the best you can at communicating. So did you ever run into a situation where, in your years of coaching, where you had a player who you just couldn't handle, and you had to get rid of that player, or you had to you know have an extreme form of discipline towards that player? Yeah, I did. I did. You got you got to be able to handle these situations. You know, the number one job description of a college basketball coach is crisis management coordinator. Uh. You know, it's not it's not X and O's. It's not recruiting. It's how you handle adversity. And sometimes you have a player on your team. And I did have a guy when I was coaching at New Mexico who was my best player, but he was so disruptive to the team that I actually kicked him off the team a day after he had 32 points in a overtime loss on national TV to Gonzaga. Oh, wow. And he had 32 in that game. And we, we just had had enough of him being a, you know, a guy that wouldn't fit in with the rest of his teammates. And mm-hmm. that's very unfortunate. Um, so you, but you have to deal with those issues. You know, you're going to always, as a coach, you're always going to have 
something that goes on, whether it's a discipline issue, um, it could be injuries, it could be just team chemistry, and you constantly have to keep working at it. Whatever the issue is, you're paid to handle adversity. You know, you're paid mm-hmm. to be a crisis manager. So um, what I think ultimately I tell young people, young coaches, is when you're recruiting, character has to be critical. Mm-hmm. You know, the character of a player has to absolutely be critical. And I even see this now, King, in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, the NBA superstars are such good citizens and good guys we might not always, we, we might complain that LeBron whines sometimes or, you know, CP3 does this on the court. But by and large, those guys are great citizens. It filters down to the rookies in the league and it filters down into college. And mm-hmm. I think when it comes to recruiting, character is really important that you recruit the right type of guy that fits your, your team's culture. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that's really a big message for young coaches. So let's say when you're, you're coaching and you run into a kid who is top, a top 10 talent in the country, top 10 player in America, McDonald's yep. All-American. Sure. But character is a little shaky. He's not, he's not a terrible kid, but character is a little shaky. Yeah. And he could possibly fall into a terrible kid. But then you have a kid over here who is middle of the pack, maybe in the, fift- in the 50s. But character right. is great. Which kid are you taking? Yep. Well, let me give you a few examples. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you a few examples. Number one, if you're taking a guy that maybe not be the might not be the highest character, but he's he's not a bad kid either. Uh-huh. You want to try to put him around really good people who know already how to work, and will bring him into the fold and hope that mm-hmm. he learns how to work and be a great teammate. Also, I recruited a guy that you've heard of that played 17 years in the NBA. I coached him at St. John's as a freshman. His name, he goes by Meta now, but he was known as Ron Artest yeah. back then. And Ron was highly volatile and intense on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved his fire and intensity. And he wasn't, a, he wasn't an angel all the time on the court, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed coaching him because he played with such passion. We had to have guys around him that were constantly keeping him in check on the court because he could lose his temper. And we saw that happen in the NBA. But looking back on it, I was really glad to coach Ron because I was able in part to help him navigate, you know, navigate uh, that temper uh, as a young college player. And I love coaching him. Mm -hmm. Now, the flip side of it is when you watch, let's say, Villanova and Virginia and even North Carolina when they won the NCAA title in 2017, a lot of those, all those teams uh, had guys that weren't necessarily top 10 players. Mm-hmm. Villanova, uh, other than Jalen Brunson being a McDonald's All-American, they had those kind of guys you were talking about. Top 50, top 75, top 100. Guys that are going to probably be around for four years. And if you find the right guys, like a Ty Jerome or a Mikel Bridges from Villanova, those guys are really fun to coach because although they're ranked reasonably high, they're coming into your school knowing that they still have a lot of work to do. And so I think it kind of goes both ways. If you're going to take that top 10 guy who may have a little bit of a character issue, you've got to put him around good people and hope that they'll mature and grow up. And that, that happens a lot. But if you're not sure, you're better off with the top 50 guy who you can trust over four years. I'll tell you that. Yeah, so it kind of brings another interesting topic. Uh, with the way college basketball is, you know, you saw – 
Virginia with, you know, a group of older guys. Um, yes. And then you've seen Villanova with a group of older guys win it and North Carolina with a group of older guys win it. Do you think that yep. college basketball is getting away from, you know, one and done trumping, you know, everything, one and one and done teams being so talented to the point to where now it's, you got to have older guys, older veterans on your team to win a championship as opposed to having a group of freshmen, you know, yeah. be so talented to where they can just win a championship. Well, it's a great question. And since 2006, when they did away with uh, players going right from high school to college, uh, to the NBA, only two teams that I can think of, uh, Kentucky in 2012 and Duke in 2015, you know, with Justice Winslow, Okafor, Ty Jones, mm-hmm. uh, you know, were, were freshman dominant. Uh, the simple fact is since 2006, almost all the teams that have won the NCAA title have been older teams with two, three, and four-year guys. And I think there's something to be said for a guy, and you went through this as a player, you lose, you lose really tough in the NCAA tournament, and you're devastated, and you and your teammates, you know, a couple weeks later, start getting back in the gym and the weight room and start working towards the next year. When you have a one-and-done one team, mostly, like Kentucky and Duke have had, the minute you lose, the likelihood is the next day uh, the young man and his parents are starting to look for agents. You know, yeah. in some cases, they're dropping out of school. And they're moving on to, you know, get ready for the NBA. And they're not as hurt by losing in the NCAA tournament as, say, a guy who's a three- and four-year player. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And I'm not saying Kentucky and Duke, two great coaches, shouldn't recruit one-and-done guys. I just think it's not the be-all and the end-all. That I'd rather have a team like Villanova two years ago who ended up with, you know, right now it looks like it's going to be five, maybe six NBA players and almost every one of those guys, well, every one of them was was at least at Villanova for two years, and mm-hmm. most of them for three and four and five. I think that's the better formula for NCAA success because maturity matters and physical development matters as well. So when you're dealing with three, four-year guys, um, ultimately, is the goal to make them better men off the court, is that more important than making them better basketball players? Well, I think when you're with three- and four-year guys, the ultimate goal is to do both mm-hmm. because these are young people that you want to look back on in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And you know, and I have this relationship with a lot of my players now. And you know, getting back to what we talked about earlier, you know, they'll thank me for being demanding and hard on them. You know? mm-hmm. I had one player who played in the NBA 12 years, and about five years ago, he's now coaching in the NBA, but I said to him out at the NBA Summer League, hey, listen, I, w- I want to apologize to you because I think I was too hard on you. And he put his hand up and he goes, coach, stop right there. You're the reason I drive a Range Rover. <laughs> and he was basically telling me if you weren't tough on me when I was a teenager, I was too immature to understand what you were trying to say then. Mm -hmm. But once I left you and got to the NBA and realized that everything you were telling me was what I was going to face when I went to the league, those are, that's rewarding. So, and he's a great young man today. So when you have a player for three or four years, like coach drew had you and, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the other guys, you want to be able to speak to everything that's going to make them successful, whether it's physically mentally, as a father, spiritually, you know, you want that young man to look back on 10 or 15 years and say, 
man, I had a great time playing for my coach. Yeah, and, for- you know, that I don't have that with every single guy, mm-hmm. but it's fun when most of those guys think back and remember, you know, that I was tough on him for a good reason. And now we can laugh about some of those times, you know? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you'll be able to when you uh, when you look back on your four years at Baylor. Yeah, so when, you know, when you have adversity as a coach, as a team, I feel like every team goes through it. You know, we, we yep. went through adversity. Now, I think you touched on this a little bit, but I kind of want to, uh, you know, emphasize this right now. When yeah. you go through adversity as a team and as a coach, what – does it take to overcome that? Does it take a team meeting? Does it take the extra hours in the gym? What What does it take? Well, it's a really good question, um, and there's no one right answer because it depends on the adversity. You know, it mm-hmm. depends on if it's a five game losing streak. Mm-hmm. If it depends on if we got team chemistry issues, if we're battling injuries, if there's one guy that's not on board. So every situation is different. You know, I can remember one year, um, one of my probably uh, when I was coaching at Manhattan College, and I had great teams there. One year we had battled injuries, and um, we had lost five in a row, which was unheard of. So coming back from a, a road trip at practice the next day, I think everybody expected me to be, you know, the tough guy mm-hmm. and be, you know, yell and holler. And sometimes as a coach, you got to go opposite of what the players expect. And we came out to practice that day, and all we did was practice last second plays. I had the I had the benches set up like game a game day, and every time we hit a last second shot, I made the guys on the bench run out on the court and celebrate. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like we did a lot, and you know we had fun with that. So what looked like was going to be a very difficult practice ended up being a really fun practice. And I don't know if that was the reason, but we won seven in a row and got to the got to the NIT that year. Uh-huh. And so. You know, the fun challenge for a coach and his players is to see the adversity in front of them, much like you guys did this year, Baylor, when, you know, on whatever it was, January 2nd or 3rd, you knew you were going to be without Tristan Clark, and you guys figured out a way to get better as a team and and almost change your team, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, uh, that's the fun part of being a coach or a player in college is, being able to overcome adversity because it teaches you, you know, some great life lessons. Yeah. So now that you are a broadcaster, do you ever, you know, think to yourself, man, I could still coach right now. Do you ever regret, you know, putting it up? No, I don't. You know, and I've, it's funny, uh, every now and then I get a call from somebody saying, hey, this job's open. Are you interested? <laughs> no, nah, not anymore. You know, like I made the decision 17 years ago or 16 when I went to ESPN that um, I, ch- I shifted gears, if you will. I changed my priorities. And, you know, you know both of my sons a little bit. Yeah. I wanted to be a better father. And, and not that I wasn't, but I just wasn't around when they were real little coaching. Yeah. So I said, wait a minute, ESPN gives me a chance to spend half the year with my sons and the other half I get to travel and be an ESPN broadcaster and that fit me and my family at the time mm-hmm. and the cool thing King as you know is I was still around the game and I'm around it to this day literally every single day and the coolest thing that happened as you know is that both of my sons must have had a happy childhood uh, and saw that their dad had a good job because they're now both coaching you know yeah. and so that's the really cool thing is I've been able to have a basketball career 
but in two parts, coaching and broadcasting. I think I'd be a heck of a coach today because of all the things I've learned. Yeah. Watching guys like Scott Drew and Bill Self and, you know, and Chris Beard and others. But I'm very content with the way my, my life's turned out because uh, I think the man upstairs had a plan for me. He said, hey, raise your kids. That's more important. And I, I feel great about, uh, you know, being an ESPN broadcaster and hopefully, you know, being a good dad. Yeah, that's, that's real. So last yep. question for you. For all yep. the coaches out there listening, what are three things, three pieces of advice that you would give to coaches, no matter what age, young, old, anything? Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you some deep stuff here, okay? Uh-oh. First Let's of go. all, number one, you should always have a board of directors. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, what I mean by that is you should always have three or four people in your life that you can go to when you have to make a tough decision. Mm-hmm. And it may be, you know, maybe your parent, it may be a, your college coach, it may be your pastor. Um, you know, your girlfriend or your wife shouldn't be on the board of directors. They should be an honorary member because mm-hmm. sometimes in the heat of the moment, they think exactly like you do, you know. And so while it's important that they care about you, I would I would suggest all young coaches or any coach have a board of directors that when stuff hits the fan, you can pick up the phone and say, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? You know, I'm thinking of kicking this player off the team. How would you handle it? Or, um, hey, we've lost three or four in a row. You got any advice for me? So have your own board of directors, just like, a, just like the CEO of a major company, right? Mm-hmm. That would be the first thing. I think the second thing is be great at what you do. In other words, I learned something about basketball. Even now, I've been in this game almost 40 years. I learned something about basketball every week that I wish I knew when I started coaching. So good young, good coaches, young and old, continue to get better. They don't stay still. Mm-hmm. They're constantly picking people's brains and learning. And the game is changing, so you have to stay up with that. And then I think the final thing is just, you know, um, in leadership, be a servant leader. You know, like lead from the bottom up uh, and um, – that simply means that, you know, don't, do, do not put yourself at the top of the triangle. Your players, your staff, they should be above you. Your job is to train them to be the best human beings they can be, the best players they can be, the best fathers and husbands. And in order to do that, you can't always be the man in charge. You mm-hmm. have to sometimes be the guy that humbles himself and says, hey, you know what, I was wrong. You were right. Let's do it your way. Or... um you know, I, you can put yourself last mm-hmm. and them first. And those three things, I think, would take you a long way. Man, that's, that's deep. <laughs> that's real deep, yep. Coach. Well, Coach, it's always great talking to you. Every time I talk to you, I always learn a lot, gain a lot of wisdom. And I really appreciate you for that. So I, I well, really thank you. I'm thrilled for being on your podcast, King, and continued success and keep up the good work. Yes, sir. You heard it here first, Fran Priscilla. Fran Priscilla was... Amazing. I told y'all, he, every time he speaks, I learn something and I learn something today. And I hope you learned something too and took something away that you can relate to. Now, next week, we have Overcoming Adversity Part 3 with a person who overcame probably one of the biggest adversities in sports, and that is Isaiah Austin. You know, I can't wait to hear his story. Can't wait to talk to him and see how he overcame with, you know, what he overcame. So tune in next week. You won't want to miss this.
Thanks for listening to King's Court Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at king.mcclure. 